Amen. So chapter 20, just to set the scene for Luke chapter 20 this morning, I want to just take a half step back and look at the end of uh, chapter 19. So look, just go like a few verses back into verse 47 into chapter 19. And it says this in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So for the past number of weeks, actually for quite a while, we've been following Jesus as he's made his way from the Galilee region down to Jerusalem, where millions of people are gathering uh, to, for the Passover meal. And so last week we saw Matt take us through where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry uh, people are grabbing palm leaves, they're laying it in front of them, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And into Jerusalem, Jesus comes, and one of the first things he does is he goes into the temple and he drives out those who've turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. And like we just read in verse 47, he begins teaching daily in the temple. And so we're just mere days away from the crucifixion of Jesus right now in Luke chapter 20. Though we don't know the exact day this takes place, uh, scholars kind of guess and they do their best guess. They say, well, if Jesus was hung on the cross early Friday morning, this set of interaction that we're going to look at here in Luke 20 probably takes place on like the Tuesday before. So just like four days before Jesus is about to be crucified is when Luke 20 takes place. And so as Jesus rolls into Jerusalem here, there begins a sort of examination and intense scrutinization that occurs, seems to take place upon Jesus here. In the same manner that takes place, the same manner of scrutinization and examination that takes place on the lamb that's chosen for the Passover meal. Exodus 12 tells us the the rules around the Passover meal and the protocol to pick a lamb that is sacrificed. And so the Passover meal is on the 14th of Nisan. Don't mind my Hebrew. Four days before before would be the 10th of Nisan. And so you're to pick the lamb to be slaughtered on the 10th, four days before the Passover meal. And you're to scrutinize it, you're, you know, the lambs to be one year old, the lambs to not have any defects, to have no flaws in it. And so four days before the Passover meal, you're to pick the lamb, pick the one you, the right one, and, and you're to scrutinize it, make sure it's good, make sure it's the right lamb as told to you by God on the Passover meal. And so in the same way that you're to inspect that Passover lamb, Jesus here is being inspected, examined, and scrutinized as the sacrificial lamb. The religious leaders here, they were coming to him with questions and attempts to undermine Jesus. A period of intense questioning occurs for our sacrificial lamb to ensure that he is pure before he's about to be led to the slaughter. Because in less than four days, in less than four days, Jesus is going to be hung on the cross for your sins and for mine. In less than four days here in Luke 20, that the unblemished lamb will keep his mouth shut as the sheep is silent before the shears. In less than four days, the one whom John the Baptist declared as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he'll be mocked and tortured and he'll ultimately willingly give up his life in an ultimate sacrifice for sin so that whoever confesses with their mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And so as, as Jesus begins, as he's teaching in the temple here, uh, he's getting ever close to knowing what is soon to pass for him. The religious leaders, they get upset and they want to find a flaw in Jesus. The, the examination and plotting against Jesus gets more and more intense the farther into Luke that we go. You know, they could put up with Jesus off in the Galilee region because that's kind of far away, you know. He's doing his thing over there and it's okay. But now, now Jesus is all up in their grill. He, he's teaching daily in the temple and the religious leaders, they don't like it. So they come to him with a question. And so we're going to look at Jesus addressing two questions today. Two questions are going to come to him today that we're going to look at. Next week, we'll look at the other two. But today we're going to look at the first two questions. And so the first question brought to Jesus by the chief priests and scribes go like this. Look at chapter 20, verse 1 says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So you want to attract some attention. Here's a tip. Enter the temple, the center of the spiritual universe. Begin driving people out. Begin preaching the gospel. And do all this in front of a group of leaders who are so stuck in their ways and so stuck in the law and religiosity that they can't even see standing in front of them is the son of man. They can't see that the God of Israel has sent his son in the flesh. And it says here, the people are hanging on every word. But the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, the elders, they can only hang on to the fact that they're losing their authority. So they say, listen, buddy, you listen here. We're the experts in the law. We're the ones who studied the Tanakh for years. We've gone to Summit Pacific Bible College. We've been to Trinity. We're the leaders here. We're the ones with the bachelor's degree in biblical studies. You tell us by what authority you're preaching all this and doing all this and who's telling you to do the things you do and what gives you the authority to come in here and preach the gospel. And Jesus responds to them in verse three, though he doesn't immediately answer the question. I mean, he's not trying to avoid the question here. He's, he's not trying to, you know, step around the question because we'll see the answer of where he gets his authority from later in the parable. But, but first Jesus responds to the question with a question of his own. He says this in verse three, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Referring to when John the Baptist uh, baptized Jesus in the Jordan, uh, Matthew 3, Mark 1, John 1, verse 5 goes on, uh, says this, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So remember, this isn't Jesus trying to evade the question brought by these men. Rather, it's an attempt to reveal the hypocrisy of these leaders that they bring this question. These, these guys aren't sincere seekers of the truth. They're merely out to get Jesus. In fact, Jesus has no problem declaring his authority. We see in John uh, chapter 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Or, or in John 10, 30, even Jesus says, I and the father are one. Or in John 14, 9, 
Uh, uh, Philip says this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So it was no secret. It was no secret where Jesus got his authority from. He, 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 didn't, he didn't mind telling where he gets his authority from to people who were sincere seekers. But in this case, he sought to reveal the hearts of the leaders asking him the question. So, so he asked this question back to them and they whisper amongst themselves, you know, they go, well, if we say this and he'll say that. I imagine Jesus just standing there, you know, twiddling his thumbs as they're like 10 feet. He can probably hear everything they're saying. And, the, you know, they're whispering like, well, if we say this and he'll say that. If we say, th- I know, I got it, I got it, I got it. We'll just say we don't know. That's the answer. And they realize now they're stuck in a rock in a hard place because they don't, they don't know what to do. So, so if they say the baptism from John was, was from, from heaven, then they'll be forced to admit that Jesus gets his authority from heaven. But, but they say, well, but if we say it's from man, then the people will kill us. <laughs> which, because they're convinced John's a prophet, which just as a side note, things really go zero to a hundred in the Bible, don't they? You're like, <laughs> well, if we, say, if we say he's from man, then they'll get pretty angry. They might write an angry letter on the Sunshine Coast FYI Facebook. It's like, no, no, they're gonna kill us. There's not like, it's like, if we say he's from man, they're gonna kill us. Like, whoa, hey, chill. For a sec, but no, they're going to kill him. So they don't know what to do. So they come back and they say, I got it. I got it. Let me talk. Maybe he says, he says, let me talk. I'll, I'll tell him. And they say, oh, we don't know Jesus. <laughs> Look at verse eight. Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus knows that they don't really have a sincere and genuine interest in this question. And we see that also commonly throughout the Bible as we read through the New Testament, right? That if Jesus is more than willing to answer your questions if you come to him with a sincere and honest heart and right intention. But he had no interest in answering the question to these guys, looking to poke holes in him. But he's still going to answer the question. Don't worry, he's not just going to avoid it altogether. Look at verse 9. He's going to answer with a parable called the parable of the wicked tenants. It says this, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So know this before we get too far into it, the, the, into this parable. The idea of a vineyard, um, throughout the course of the Old Testament, a vineyard is often the symbol of Israel. So a, a bit of history that we modern people in Canada don't maybe know on everything, that, that a, the idea of a vineyard is often refers to uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So these Jewish people listening that Jesus turns and looks to, they would have known, they know the context. They know what Jesus is talking about. They would have known right away the symbol of a vineyard often refers to the people of Israel. This would have instantly set alarm bells to these people. They would have gone, oh, wait a minute, vineyard, that usually refers to the people of Israel. This might be about us, what Jesus is talking about. So he keeps going. Look again at verse nine and then we'll go. Actually, just look again at verse nine, and then I got another thing to say. He began to tell the people this parable. 
a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. So a common deal in that time, a common agreement in that time, landowners, I don't know much about farming and stuff, but I imagine it's done nowadays even. Farm owners, landowners in that time, they owned multiple pieces of land. And rather than hire people and do the day-to-day operations, and it's a big, you know, it's a big operation to deal with the land and farm it and grow and this and that. They just wanted to be landowners. So what they would do is they would lease out the land to different people and they'd strike some sort of agreement and they would grow things on their land and they'd say, hey, when the harvest comes, I'll come back and I'll collect my payment. will be, I don't know, 60, 40, 70, 30. I don't know, whatever the deal was made. So they would lease out their land to people to farm it. And then when harvest came, they would come and collect their portion for owning the land. Let's keep going. Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. A picture here of the prophets of the Old Testament being sent to Israel and how they were treated with disrespect, shamefully treated time and time again. They would come from the direction of the Father to speak to the people of Israel. And time and time again, they would be mocked, cast aside, and just generally cast aside. Didn't care about them. So look at verse 13. And this is where Jesus answers the question from the religious leaders about where Jesus gets his authority. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. So Jesus, the beloved son has been sent by the father Where does he get his authority? He's the son of the vineyard owner. He's the son of the land owner, the son of the father. The people knew here what Jesus was saying. They knew that the land owner referred to God the father. And they know that the beloved son that was sent to collect is Jesus himself. And in this parable, two things stand out to me. And the first thing is this. First thing is this that stands out to me. I don't have it on screen, so you'll just have to write it down quick as I say. God is patient. And he seeks that all will be saved. But friends, there is a time that judgment will come. Time and time again, the landowner would send a servant to communicate with the tenants. And time and time again, they would beat him and send him off. They just wouldn't listen. They would beat and wound the servant and send him away. And eventually he sends his own son who the tenants murder in an attempt to produce their own inheritance. Friends, the Lord is patient He gives many, many chances, sends three servants, and then his own son is a picture of the patience and a chance at repentance. But here's the other thing. God's patience comes to an end eventually. God isn't patient forever. Look at verse 16 again. What will the landowner do? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. Friends, the the Lord is patient. The Lord is long-suffering. He gives many, many chances, but eventually the chances will run out. 
eventually judgment will come and it won't be pretty. Within this parable is the second thing I see is this. It's actually a prophecy of things to come. Jesus actually prophesies this even about himself within the week. Remember, the people know, the people know, remember, the people know this. The tenants, they know who the tenants are. The leaders, they know that the vineyard represents the, 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 the people of Israel. They know the tenants represent the leaders. The leaders, the religious leaders standing around are hearing this and they go, this guy can't be talking about us, can they? And Jesus tells them, he says, man, the beloved son has come and the tenants kill him. Just a day or two ago in Luke, from Luke chapter 20 here, Jesus was greeted with the shouts and proclamation as he enters into Jerusalem. And yet in just under four days here, the leaders are going to take him, the son of the vineyard owner, and they're going to throw him out of the vineyard and they're going to kill him. And that's why at the end of verse 16, they say, surely not, surely this parable cannot be about us. Surely this parable is not about us. Look at verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 118 here. This is a quote from Psalm 118, which emphasizes the very building of God. The kingdom of God will be founded on the cornerstone, a single stone that is used to bear the weight of the structure around it, the most important stone in the structure used to set the standard for the rest of the building around it. The stone that the builders rejected is actually going to become the cornerstone in the kingdom of God. The same stone rejected is the same rejected son of the vineyard owner. And he says this in verse 18, which is an easy one to pass over, but it's, a, it's an important verse. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus as the cornerstone continues all through the, all through the New Testament. Actually, I've got a couple of examples here. Um, Ephesians chapter two, I think this will come up on the screen. Ephesians chapter two says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, or Peter says this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, Psalm 118 again here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Or listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The stone upon which the entire church was built Upon those who trust in the chief cornerstone, they will be built up through him 
and they will not be put to shame. Yet to some, the cornerstone can be a stumbling block. To those that don't know Jesus, the gospel is an offense, the Bible says. They mock, they reject the living stone, and those who reject Jesus will fall on him, they'll trip over him, and they'll be broken to pieces. You know, I, I personally know someone um, that has no problem, and this is a true story, no problem letting uh, Mormons into their house, no problem talking with them about this or that, no problem going to various religious centers, Jehovah Witness centers, no problem, no problem with any of that. But as soon as we invite them to CTK, personally invite them here, not a chance. How Quite upset, actually. Not a chance am I coming to church with you. You know I don't like that kind of stuff. You know that's not for me. And, and it it's actually makes me kind of sad here now that I'm standing up here thinking about it. I didn't think about it this way, but it's sad. It's sad. Those with a heart hardened towards Christ, Jesus can be a stumbling block, can be offensive to them. Look at verse 19. It says this, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they sought to lay hands on Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. So they decided to change their tactic a bit. You know, they put on a wig, a couple of guys maybe. They, uh, you know, have them blend into the crowd. Just look like you're every ordinary Jewish Joe Blow kind of guy. Just, hey, here to see Jesus. Excited to see you. He's just kind of milling about. And, and they have them ask a question. Seem really sincere and honest. And they go, hey, listen, you got to really look sincere here because this Jesus, he's pretty good at, at what, he's, what he's doing here. He, we don't know how he does it, but he's pretty good at, at figuring us out. So put this wig on and go in the crowd and, and ask him this question. And they try to catch Jesus in a tough question again. This is question number two that they bring to Jesus in Luke chapter 20. So in verse 21, they, they ask the question. They start with some flattery. And that's as good advice, actually, just as a side note for us. Good way to say tough things. You start, they always say, start with good, bad, good. So if you want to criticize me after the sermon today, start with good, bad, good. Shoes, start with something, nice shoes. Blake, your hair looks thick today or something. Then say, wow, that was terrible. And then <laughs> see you next week. Yeah, back to shoes. <laughs> just atrocious message, but I like the sweater. <laughs> uh, so look at what they say, verse 21. They, they come up to him and they're trying to be all, all sly and, and sincere. And they say to this, they say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they come up to Jesus and say, hey, should we basically, should we pay taxes or not? <laughs> What's the deal here? And they're looking to get caught. They're looking to catch Jesus in another slippery slope here and kind of slipping up over his own words. Uh, because they know this. They know that there's an expectation for the Messiah, that he's going to come to Jerusalem the people kind of think that he's going to, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to liberate the people from the Roman 
occupation of their land. And, and so they know if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then that would really upset the Jewish people who feel the Romans are illegally occupying their land. And, you know, there's even a certain sect of Jewish people like the zealots who like refuse to pay their taxes and, and how dare those Romans. And they don't like the Romans. So on one hand, the people could accuse him of denying the sovereignty of God over Israel. They say, how, Jesus, you're, you dummy, don't pay taxes. But on the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then you know what's going to happen. A little bird's going to make its way up to the Roman emperor and they're going to say that this Jesus guy is going around uh, telling people not to pay taxes and that's going to get him very quickly sent to jail for treason and, and doing, you know, you can't say don't pay taxes. They're not going to be happy with that. So it's a pretty good question by these guys. Pretty good. They got him in a good situation. And let's, let's look at what Jesus has to say though, which Quickly, I think we all know, if you haven't figured it out by now, really hard to get Jesus caught in a slippery slope. Like really, really hard. So spoiler alert, I think you know, he's gonna have a masterful response here. Really hard to get Jesus. Look at verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So a denarius worth about uh, one day's wage. It fluctuated up and down. I got a picture of it there. That's kind of, that's actually is, they find denarius. That looks like it says, that's not what I thought it was, but that's an example of a denarius. It would change like every 30 years, depending on who's in charge. They'd put their own inscription, their own face on it. Um, I thought I had a picture of the actual one that they would have been used during that time, but I don't think that's it. Anyways, that's about what it would look like. Just change picture. Various looks like that. It's about one day's wage. It would fluctuate up and down depending on the silver content of what was in there. They say, in general, they said a, a professional soldier would receive 225 denarii a year. So I don't know what union labor laws were like if they got a couple days break every week. I'm not sure what the laws were like. Probably didn't get any days vacation but it's about a day to a day and a half worth of wage, depending on the year, would be one denarius. So Jesus takes the coin and he takes a look at it and he says, well, whose picture, whose image is stamped upon this coin? And it has the Roman emperor's face on it. So Jesus says, well, if this coin is owned by Caesar, he minted it, he created it, he put his likeness on it, give it back to him. And this premise still holds true today, Right? You think you can live in this country and not pay taxes? Sorry, guys, you have to pay taxes. Let's just get this. Listen, I hate taxes as much as the next guy. I don't like taxes. I, and I think the government is just as corrupt as the next, well, actually some of you I know I don't think as much as corrupt as some of you in here. But I think the government's just as corrupt, let's be honest. We got some crazy people in here that think the government's gonna blow up and whatever. But in general, we all know taxes suck, government sucks. But in general, in general, we can agree the government is for the good of the people. Paying taxes keeps your roads in half-decent shape. Paying taxes gives you free medical care. Uh, paying taxes funds the police, which helps keep things orderly. Uh, paying taxes uh, supplies water to your house, depending where you live. <laughs> we'll be getting water now, don't worry. But in general, pay your taxes, people. Pay your taxes. If you're here today and you're asking, do I need to pay my tax? Yes, pay your taxes. 
In 598 BC, the Jewish people were captured by the Babylonians. They were taken away, shipped off to Babylon by their captors. They were forced to live in a foreign land under the rulers and authorities that they didn't like. And the prophet Jeremiah encouraged them saying this, seek the peace of the city. And so obligation number one here in Jesus's response is to pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Why? Because it's not yours anyways. They want some of it back. Give it to them. We aren't even going to talk about whether you think the government has authority over you because we've talked about that enough for the past couple of years. We're not going to go there. <laughs> but friends, hear this one because this next thing I'm going to say is really important. This is what's important. Obligation number one, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Obligation number two from Jesus here, give to God what is God's. To Caesar, you need to give a portion of your money back to him. You need to pay your taxes. But to God, you need to give all of yourself. In the same way, the likeness of Caesar is imprinted on the denarius, the likeness of God is imprinted on you. I hope you heard that. And I'm talking about you personally. You have the likeness of God imprinted upon you. Listen to Genesis chapter one, first chapter in the Bible. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Listen to this quote from an old theologian, Adam Clark is his old name. He's back from the 1700s. He says this regarding this uh, little bit here that Jesus talked about. He says this, it establishes the limits, regulates the rights, and distinguishes the jurisdiction of the two empires of heaven and earth. The image of princes stamped on their coin denotes that temporal things belong all to their government. The image of God stamped on the soul denotes that all its faculties and powers belong to the most high and should be employed in his service. All you are and all you have are to be rendered back to God. Don't be so worried about whether you have to pay your taxes or not. This money that you have right now, it's not even yours anyways. Give it back to the government, that which is the government's. For those things are temporal, but you you child of God, you have the image of God stamped on your soul and you belong to the most high. And the thing is, is that God is a little more uh, demanding. <laughs> he doesn't just require part of you. He wants all of you. He's not like the government who says, give me back your 40%. He says, no, no, I want you all. In our puny brains, we think that money is important day-to-day -day life, right? We think, oh, we got to get money. We got to get things. We need to fight for what we have here on this temporal planet. Yet the truth of our higher calling is so much more important. For it isn't just a, a stamp. It isn't just like a, a, a stamp that's been denoted on you, like a, a, some ink spread on a $5 bill or, or a, 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 what's that called? Where they uh, imprinted in like the wax, this is it stand? Seal, that's the word. It's not just a seal. Well, it's, it's more than just a, a physical seal put on you. It's the seal of the Holy Spirit entrusting you 
to God, that you have been bought with a price. It's not just stamping a seal on it. You have been bought with a price and that price is no small thing and we should not take it lightly. Look at what 1 Peter says. Actually, actually don't bring it up on the screen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 because this is an awesome verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter, I'll turn there with you so I don't cheat either. 1 Peter, it's after all the T's and Hebrews and James. Here's a fun tip for you to say at your Christmas party. All the T books of the Bible in the New Testament are together. Isn't that fun? Oh, not so much. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter, it's near the end of your Bible, before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, page 1294, if you've got my Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and read with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, that's the God we serve. God wants all of us. He's not like a one Daenerys that we give back to the government. The Lord seeks all of us. And with the stamp of the Holy Spirit, sealing and trusting the inheritance to come, we give it all back to God. Amen? Look back at Luke 20. Luke 20, verse 26, the final verse as the worship team gets ready to come up. And they were not able in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. 